Charlie Musselwhite joins me in episode 27. Charlie grew up in Memphis rubbing shoulders with Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley, where it took him north to Chicago where he discovered the Southside blues scene, where he befriended several legends of the blues harmonica. Sitting in with Muddy Waters got Charlie noticed and he was soon recording his seminal album Stand Back. This led him to the West Coast where he's recorded over 30 albums, received numerous Grammy nominations, won a Grammy in 2013, been inducted in the Blues Hall of Fame and appeared in the Blues Brothers 2000 film. Charlie's latest album, 100 Years of Blues, shows that he still loves the blues just like he did when he first got started. A word to my sponsor again, thanks to the Lone Wolf Blues Company, makers of effects pedals, microphones and more, designed for harmonica. Remember, when you want control over your tone, you want Lone Wolf. Hello, Charlie Musselwhite, and welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So first off, let's start off about your uh, early life. You were born in Mississippi, and then from the age of three, you moved across to Memphis. That's true. I moved to Memphis, and uh, but I kept spending my summers with my grandparents in Mississippi and visiting different relatives. I mean, Memphis is right on the border of Mississippi, so it's not like I went that far. <laughs> As I say, you were in Memphis from a young age, and that's the music scene that you grew up in, and, and a very good music scene. You enjoyed quite a lot of range of, of music around there when you were growing up. Oh, well, Memphis is a, <clears throat> was a real music city. Uh, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was growing up, it was great gospel, and you could hear it on the radio. Or I, I loved to go to the tent meetings. I didn't go in. I would drive up next to them and drink beer and watch the show <laughs> and hear all the great singing and everything. Johnny Burnett, the rockabilly guy, lived right across the street from me, and Johnny Cash didn't live that far away. And Sorry, I understand you went to school with Johnny Cash's brother. Yeah, Tommy was on the uh, basketball team, and because of that, Johnny would come to the basketball games. And also, uh, Elvis was around at the time as well, wasn't he? And this is someone you saw around and went to some of his parties, I understand. Yeah, I had his phone number. I'd call up and find out where he was holding. He would have parties around town. He would, like, rent a theater and have some the latest movies, or he might rent the whole entire fairgrounds with all the rides free and free hot dogs and hamburgers. And they would always go from, like, around midnight till dawn. And I like to go because there was a ton of really pretty girls there. <laughs> Excellent. So he was famous by this point, then I take it. He was famous, but also he meant, really meant something to local people because he like validated the poor boy from Mississippi type of guy. You know, you know, Memphis was full of poor boys from Mississippi like Elvis. And we all combed our hair like that and bought clothes on Beale Street. But we were considered like white trash. But uh, Elvis, like he made us cool. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you still are. So obviously some, some great people around Memphis, but also some good blues harmonica players and, and blues players. So Will Shade and Gus Cannon around there as well. Did you manage to check those guys out when you were younger? Oh, yeah. I spent a lot of time with those guys. And uh, there was another guy named Harmonica Joe, but he recorded for his son. Another guy named Johnny Moment. And a friend of mine named Clyde L. Smith. But uh, as usual, there's more guitar players than harmonica players. 
Oh, Willie B. Also, Willie Orham. He was a he played harmonica on the rack. He was the first one that got me interested in playing the harmonica on the rack with a guitar. Yeah, I've never actually seen you perform that. Is that something you do? You perform live doing that at all, or recorded anything of that? Uh, well, I have a whole album out of uh, guitar music. There's another one in the can I recorded in Clarksdale with a drummer named Quicksand. I don't know when I'll release that, but hopefully within a couple of years or so. I did two tours with BB uh, King, opening for him and. One in Europe and one in the U.S. where I just came out and sat down and played guitar. And the harmonica on the rack at the same time? Yeah, not on every tune, but a lot of the tunes. And which album is that with you? Have you got an album where you're playing um, the guitar with harmonica on the rack? I believe the title of it is In Your Darkest Hour. It's on the Henrietta label. Talking about other instruments then and getting into, obviously you also play guitar as well as harmonica and singing, of course. Was it the harmonica which came first for you? Well, in a way, it seemed like everybody had a harmonica when I was a kid. It was, you know, they were real cheap. They only cost like a dollar or something, and kids would get them for Christmas or for their birthday. And it was a common toy. You know, it was considered a toy. And I had one, you know, I just tooted around on it like a, a kid might do. And when I was around 13, uh, I became interested in blues, and I really loved the way uh, the first Sonny Boy sounded. I remember thinking to myself, well, you got a harmonica. It sounds so good to listen to it. I bet it feels even better to play like that. And I just take that harmonica out in the woods and just try to make up my own blues. And that's where I got started, out in the woods. You mentioned the first Sonny Boy, though. Was there any particular songs of his that really grabbed you? You know, I used to go around Memphis looking in junk stores for old blue 78s. Well, I got a lot of Sonny Boys, and uh, one of them, one of my first ones I really liked was The Big Boat. And uh, Sonny Boys Jump, That was a, I loved that one. I still love those tunes. They sound great to me. Uh, and then what, what age did you pick up the guitar? When I was 13, about the same time I got interested in playing blues on harmonica, my dad gave me his guitar, which was an old uh, supertone. I started playing that and trying to figure out how to play the blues on it. There were guys I would, there were street singers I'd watch in Memphis, and I'd go home and I'd watch what they were doing and go home and try to duplicate that. Do you think learning the guitar at that time also helps you as a harmonica player? Yeah, I think anything you learn helps with other things. Any new way you can think about music helps the other ways you have of playing it. Sometimes I'll figure something out. You know, harmonica, you can't see anything. And sometimes it's easier to visually look at the fingerboard on a guitar and figure something out and then translate that to the harmonica. Yeah, and I hear on your recordings, quite often you do a thing where you play in unison with the guitar. So is that maybe something you've got interested from, you know, from playing the guitar yourself and, like you say, working things out on the guitar and on the harmonica? Well, it could be. I just know that's kind of a cool sound when you can play in unison. Catches people's ears. 
And uh, and of course, singing is a uh, another thing you're very well known for. Were you also singing back then, or did it take you a little bit longer to find your voice? I'm still finding it. <laughs> I, I didn't, uh, you know. I always thought if you really want to sing, the best thing to do is go to church. But I just wasn't much of a church goer, so I just kind of figured it out on my own. I like to think of myself as a lifelong learner. I'm still learning guitar and harmonica and singing. Well, that's great to hear that you still got that passion for learning, and you know, so it's a good good lesson to everybody, isn't it? That you got to keep that interest in learning and improving all the time. So, well, I do it from the point of view of, is is pleasing myself. You know, if even if I had never recorded or had a career in music, it's still what I'd be doing. You know, if I worked at the factory, never left Chicago, I'd, I would still be playing music if, if it wasn't for anybody but myself, because I just love it that much, and it makes me feel good. Your father, of course, did play some harmonica and guitar, but he, he didn't encourage you to pursue music, did he? Oh, no. <laughs> that wasn't a real job in his eyes. It turned out well for you. Was he, was he proud of what, uh, of what you managed to achieve in the music? Oh, finally, he came around. Yeah, and your, and your family, I think you, you had, came from quite a musical family, didn't you? Lots of your family members played instruments, including your mother, uh, tinkered on the piano. Yeah, a lot of people, they weren't necessarily professional, but they played uh, guitars or harmonicas or something. And I did have an uncle that had a one-man band. And I asked him one time, who did you play for? And uh, he said he just followed the harvest. You know, when people were harvesting the in the fall, he'd be right there when they got off of work playing for them for tips. Field workers. And almost every muscle I've ever met plays some kind of instrument. And uh, so maybe it's kind of partly genetic. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's in the blood. It's in the blood somewhere. Did you play? Did you jam with your family members? Uh, no, not really. I, I just wanted to play blues, and they they kind of looked down on blues or didn't want, weren't interested in blues. I've read some quotes from you about the love that you have for blues, you know, and what the music means to you. Yeah, I say it's your comforter when you're down and your buddy when you're up. It's always there for you. So then you moved from uh, from Memphis up to Chicago. I think you were in the early 60s. You went up there just looking for work. Yeah, you didn't even know Chicago was blues town, did you, when you went up there? I didn't know that at all. I, I was aware that, you know, these labels like Chess and VJ were in Chicago. It said so on the label, but that didn't mean to me that there was a big blues scene there. I had been told that anybody that was an entertainer, they either lived in New York City or Hollywood. So in my mind, I kind of pictured a guy like Muddy Waters living in New York City or something. I didn't know. So it was a big, pleasant surprise to me to suddenly find myself, find this whole big blues scene. It was just, I was like a kid in a candy store. So this, so this was in the early 1960s. I think you, you, you took a job and, and you, you became aware of the, of the blues clubs around and, and you saw them. I think you were driving a truck, weren't you? And you became aware of the blues clubs and that's how you, you started going to the blues clubs around Chicago. It wasn't a truck. It was a guy who was an exterminator and he had a car. It was a little car called a Lark. And I would drive him and, and his uh, tanks for spraying roaches. I'd drive him all over Chicago, which was perfect because I got to learn the whole city right away, real fast. And that's where I saw posters on, and, and signs on the front of bars and you know, for Muddy. And I remember seeing uh, Elmore James, Tuesday night, 
Once you find a couple of those bars, you find out all the rest of the places to go. These are mostly black clubs, yeah. So you went and you were like one of the only white guys in there. Yeah, I rarely saw any white faces, but uh, it didn't bother me. I was always perfectly comfortable with black people. I'd known black people all my life. Even when I was a a baby, uh, my mother was in civil service, which took her away from home, and my dad was in the Navy, and I was left in Mississippi alone with a a black lady named Velma, and she was like my other mother. And my mom would come home, and I'd be with her for months. My mom would come home and want to cook for me, and I'd say, no, I want Velma's cooking. She told me it hurt her feelings, but she got over it. That's great to hear. And I think, you know, the the message I saw there is that you got a great welcome from all these blues musicians in Chicago, these black blues musicians. And they sort of saw you as coming from uh, from the South, where, you know, where there are, some of them had come from and their family had come from. And, uh, and you were welcomed into that scene. And they were very welcome and encouraging to you, you know, the kind of only white guy in the club. Well, they were really flattered. I knew who they were and I had their records and I knew the names of their tunes. And, and I was their fan. And that's why I was there. So, so is that that's because at the time their records were really only selling to black audiences, were they? It wasn't popular with white audiences at that point. Well, for one thing, young black kids my age had no use for blues. They didn't care for blues at all. When I would talk to guys my age about Helen Wolf or Muddy Waters, they just thought I was crazy. They'd say, man, that's the old folks' music. you got to get up with the times. So it was the music of their parents, and they didn't want nothing to do with it. So not only did I stand out, because I was white, but I stood out because I was young. This was strictly adults, for, for as far as I was concerned. There wasn't anybody my age, black or white, in these clubs. For both those reasons, they were real flattered. And uh, being from down south seemed to really mean something. I wasn't a local Yankee. When I would be introduced to other people, they'd always add that, you know, Charlie, he's from down home. Like, that really meant something. It was important. Were you part of that wave of the, you know, the sort of white blues boom? You know, obviously yourself and, and Paul Butterfield and Mike Bloomfield and obviously the British blues boom. Did the, did the British blues boom come sort of before the American blues boom? Or, you know, how did that work? Well, I was playing blues before I ever heard of any English groups playing blues. When I did hear English groups playing blues, I, I was I thought that was cool because you know blues was like really underground for a long time. There wasn't there's nothing like it is today. You couldn't read anything. You might find a book on jazz that would have a little chapter on blues, and it would just talk about Bessie Smith or something. You didn't read about Lightning Hopkins or nothing like that. And I mean, all these things you have today, like blues societies and blues festivals and blues cruises, and none of that existed. Blues was really underground. You couldn't hardly find blues records. You had to like really search places for them. And it's a whole different world now. It's all accessible with the DVDs and everything, YouTube. I mean, you can just saturate yourself with blues. But back in the early 60s, it just wasn't any. That's really interesting to hear you say that because certainly I have a perception that, you know, Chicago was a great blues town. And obviously there were lots of blues clubs, but like you say, probably somewhat underground and within the black community. No, there was a big blues scene on, on the south side of Chicago, in the, in the black part of Chicago. There were a lot of blues clubs, and occasionally you guys would come out with a 45 like Alan Wolf or Sonny Boy. Or, it wasn't a big scene outside of the south side, outside of the black neighborhoods. You know, you didn't pick up the paper and read about, you know, Muddy Waters is playing tonight, you know. 
It might be an ad in a, a local black paper. It was all underground and hidden. You had to find it for yourself. But like I said, once you found a couple of clubs and got to know people that were blues lovers, you would find out about all the other clubs too. And everybody, it was kind of a network that you got into and you met people that knew about the other clubs and musicians and the bands and where they were playing. And But, you know, there wasn't any internet back then or nothing like that. You had to really figure it all out. A lot of great blues and a lot of clubs, but they were all small. It wasn't enough. You couldn't hardly make a living playing. And if that's all you did, well, a lot of those guys had day jobs. Only guys that didn't have day jobs were guys like Wolf and Muddy that were they were still putting out singles and touring. And when they weren't on the road, they had their home club that they would play at. Like Wolf was always at Silvio's when he was in Chicago, and Muddy was always at Pepper's when he was in Chicago. That's where you got your your sort of break here. You you sat in with Muddy at Pepper's Club, and uh, you know that's that's maybe when you first got your name known for playing the harmonica. Yeah, I wasn't going around asking to sit in. I didn't even ever tell anybody I played anything. They just thought I was a fan. But I got to know this waitress real good. I played for her one time at her apartment. Next thing I know, she's telling Muddy, you ought to hear Charlie play harmonica. Muddy's like surprised. He didn't know I played anything. And when he found out that I played, he insisted I sit in, which wasn't unusual to sit in with Muddy. People sat in with Muddy all the time. It was very casual. But uh, it was just unusual for a young white kid or any young kid to uh, sit in. And I got a lot of attention right away. And other musicians that hung out at Pepper's when they weren't working, they heard me playing. And right away, people started offering me gigs. Well, that got my attention, really. I thought, wow, you're going to pay me to play? Well, all right. So when you first played with Muddy, were you quite a good player by that stage? I could play. I mean, I was playing. I just, I had never thought about doing that for a living or I didn't have a goal to be on stage. That wasn't anything I ever thought about. I, I like to play the blues and I just played it for myself. I didn't have any intent, intention of becoming a known musician. That just happened to me. Great to hear that Muddy was encouraging and some of the other harmonica players I've spoken to on here have said the same, Kim Wilson and, and, and others. Well, after that, anytime I saw Muddy, he always would have me sit in, no matter where I saw him. He would call me up to sit in. And whilst you were in Chicago, you obviously hung out with a lot of other blues musicians, and you lived with Big Joe Williams, who wrote "Baby Please Don't Go." And but also, I mean, harmonica player-wise, you you you, saw, you knew Sonny Boy the Second, you knew Little Walter, Howling Wolf, of course, plays harmonica. So, were you hanging out with these guys? Were you playing with them, getting any tips from them, or anything like that? No, people didn't really talk about stuff like that. You just, you know, everybody expected you to play, you know, and everybody seemed to have something to offer. You know, a guy that might not play a whole lot, he, what he did play was respected and important. You know, like a guy like John Wrencher, he was a, I really loved his playing, but it was well, even Howlin' Wolf. Wolf didn't play more than about three or four notes, but it sounded so good the way he played. I mean, his tone was just massive. That's all he needed. He, he could have got away with just playing one note. There wasn't that much talk about technique or what kind of mic you have or what kind of amplifier you have. I never heard anybody talk about any of that stuff. <laughs> Well, again, not like today, eh? When that's all over the internet. And I'll talk to you about it at the end, too. You know, one thing comes to mind about as far as technique, I saw uh, Walter Horton playing one night, and he had two harmonicas back to back, and he would play 
one and he'd flip it over and play the other one. And one of them, I could tell from his phrasing, he was playing in second position. But the other one, I couldn't tell what he was doing. I never heard anything like that. And he was playing in the key of A and in a D harmonica. He showed me that he the other harmonica was C. So he was playing in fourth position on a C harmonica. I had never heard of such a thing. I didn't know if there was first, second, and third. I'd never heard of anybody ever mentioned anything about playing another key, another position. Well, that was pretty mind-blowing for me back then. And a couple of weeks maybe after that, I saw little Walter on 63rd Street. I'll never forget it. He was standing on the sidewalk, and I walked up to him, and we were talking. And I remembered seeing Walter Horton playing the key of A on a C harmonica, and I told little Walter about it. And I still remember little Walter just shrugging his shoulders and saying, oh, that ain't nothing. You can play in the key of E on a C harmonica, too. And I thought, damn. (laughs) Then I got to thinking, it seemed like if you could find any octave on a harmonica, there's some way to get between those two notes and make make yourself playing in that key. But uh, five positions is enough for me. Yeah, but I guess again, though, interesting looking back on when you were, you know, learning these things back then, you know, compared to now when it was all over the internet. I mean, so how did you learn these things? Is it just from talking to other players, or were there a few, one or two books around and things like that, or just playing along with records? No, I just listened. You know, I, I would soak it up just listening, and then I would sit around and just fool around with the harmonica and figure out stuff for myself. Uh, I would play a note, and I'd think to myself, what's the next note you want to hear? And I'd find it. And i said, what's the note you want to hear after that? And I'd find that note. Another thing that Walter Horton told me, he said, learn your patterns. Figuring out the note you wanted to play one by one, that was a pattern. When you start playing in different keys and learning the patterns for those keys or positions, they were the patterns that he was talking about. That's what I put my time into is learning the patterns. I wasn't necessarily trying to play like anybody else, and I never was much for memorizing anything. I did at one time knew how to play juke note for note, but I don't remember that anymore. (laughs) I think that was the only thing I ever really memorized. And you mentioned Big Walter there. I mean, Big Walter did give some lessons, didn't he? So did you ever go go around to his place and, and have a lesson from him? Well, I used to spend a lot of time with Walter. We were just real good friends, but a lesson was really just sitting around drinking. That was a lesson. <laughs> We'd play together, but uh, he didn't give me any instruction, you know, like, don't do that thing you're doing there, or do it this way, or nothing like that. He just, we just have fun together. And we would walk around, we'd walk all over Chicago going to different people's homes he knew. The idea was that we would go in and play for him and we'd get a free drink. We'd do that all all over Chicago, <laughs> all over the South Side. You got some recordings with him on the Chicago Blues Today album. So is that your first recording session? I'm not sure. I know that uh, Sam Charters had hired me to play on an album by Tracy Nelson called Deeper the Roots. remember playing for some folk singer. I don't remember his name now. He wanted a harmonica on his record, uh, but I don't know what came first. I just don't remember anymore. 
No, it's fine. But yeah, I mean, you, there, there's some great, you know, there's, I think there's three tracks on that Chicago uh, the Blues today and you playing Rockin' My Boogie with, uh, with Big Walter. Yeah. Sam Charters, he got the idea to do that because he had seen us play together. So he wanted to capture that two harmonica thing and he put it on that album. And then you did your first album, the, the Stand Back, Here Comes um, Charlie Muswite's uh, Southside Blues Band. So that you were 22 years old then and uh, I think you recorded this in, in one session, didn't you? Yeah, we had to do the whole thing in three hours. We did it in under three hours. If you if you went over three hours, according to the union, they had to pay you double. And Vanguard wasn't going to have that, so we had to get it all done in under three hours. Came out, and it was very successful for you, that album, wasn't it? Yeah, much to my surprise. I had no idea it was going to do anything. I mean, the whole idea of me making an album was kind of a lark to me. I didn't, I just had no idea anybody was interested or it would do anything, and as far as I looked at it, it was a, a session. I thought I'd make some money from the session so I could buy a new amp. But when the union got the check, they told me to come down and get it. The check was only for 36 cents. And to get that check, the union wanted me to give them $4 work dues. Uh-huh. Well, I never got the check. <laughs> 36 cents wasn't going to do much for me. Did you get any anything from the sales of that album? Was that all owned by the record company? You know, the deal I signed with them was really a bad deal. And I I didn't know anything about the business. I had no uh, manager. I had no booking agent or nothing. I knew zero about the business. And I had nobody to advise me or tell me anything or how to do it. Or, But nevertheless, it was still a great album for you and definitely got your name out there. It gave me a career and put me on the road. It was worth that 36 cents. So, I mean, the song you're very closely associated with and you've recorded on several of your albums is Crystal Redemptor. Which I think was originally a sort of, a sort of jazz tune from a trumpet player, wasn't it? That's true, but I remember the first time I heard it, thinking that would sound great on a harmonica. You know, they had it on the jukebox in the blues clubs. That's where I heard it. Anyhow, I just knew that that melody would sound really pretty on harmonica. I think I was right. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a very haunting melody. It's a, it's a fantastic tune, yeah. So, yeah, and then there was Help Me and Early in the Morning. So, you, you know, you did a lot of the, obviously, the blues songs that you loved at that time, yeah. So it's a great album and it came out very well. And Thank you. Still, I mean, it still holds up well today, doesn't it? That's it's never been out of print. It's been in, it's been available for over fifty years. Fantastic, and just twenty-two years old then as well. So that's the start of it for you. So, and then uh, I think that was in sixty-six, and then is it sixty-seven? You moved to California, and was this sort of on the back of the success of the album that your sort of name when and you got some gigs in California on the back of the Stand Back album? Well, after that album came out, I started getting calls from different places to come play and 
I kept putting it off. And finally, some guy in California put together a whole month of work for really good money, way better than I was making in Chicago. So I thought, well, I'll just go out there and make that money and come back to Chicago. But when I came out to California, I saw that there was a ton of work all up and down the whole West Coast. And that blues was kind of something exotic. They didn't know about blues on the West Coast. The hippies didn't anyhow. And they were the ones going to these ballrooms. And so that's where the money was at. So I just, I didn't go back to Chicago. Was this a sort of start, at least for you, of the, you know, the kind of white blues band? And do you think you were one of the forerunners of that, you know, moving over to California and doing well over there with that? Well, it wasn't uh, on purpose that it was white. It was just whoever was available I could get to play with me. Later on, I, I got a lot of guys to come out from Chicago. I had Lewis Myers and Jack Myers and Fred Belo and Freddie Roulette and a lot of guys I brought out from Chicago later on when I could afford it. Yeah, so I mean, obviously you didn't see it as a racing, like you say, you were very well integrated with the guys in Chicago anyway, but obviously there's that kind of white kind of blues band in the 60s, and um, obviously yourself and Paul Butterfield, I mean, do you think you were the first in that, or were there, were there a few other bands around at the time, you know, sort of white blues bands? Well, there was a couple of guys in Chicago, uh, and then on the West Coast, there wasn't much that I knew about at the time. I mean, later on, I got to know other people, and I'd run into people that white guys my age that were playing harmonica and a lot of them because of they had heard me or butterfield and were inspired because of that that they could do that too so then you made a you made another album in 68 louisiana fog which is another good album and then in 1969 i've got to i've got to talk about this one charlie memphis charlie your memphis charlie album that's the first time i heard you charlie and i absolutely loved it ain't right and finger looking good And Memphis Charlie, you were known, I think, as Memphis Charlie in Chicago, weren't you? Hence, hence the name of that album. Yeah, Big Joe Williams gave me that name when I first met him. That's where that name comes from. I've had a great recording career. I mean, uh, I think I'm counting on the discography on your website that you've got 34 albums listed on there. Um, and you've recorded on numerous others as well. So a great long list of albums. I mean, picking through the albums to talk about, it's difficult to choose because you've done so many. You know, and what about your, your long recording career? How have you managed to keep that going? And Well, it seems like there's always somebody interested in, you know, a label or a promoter or somebody interested in recording me. So that helped. You know, I never quit playing. I never quit touring. And so I've always had an audience that would buy my records. And, you know, eventually I started putting them out on my own label called the Henrietta label, which is my wife's name. And she's also my manager. Another album going to the late 70s now, The Harmonica, according to Charlie Musselwhite. Some great songs and some great harmonica instrumentals on there, such as Harping on a Riff. You do our harmonica instrumental really well. Originally, that album was supposed to be just a, it was a company, I forget the name of it now, but they just put out instructional books with, with an album. Kicking Mule, that was the original label. That's all that was about. It's just supposed to be with an instructional book. That other label that it's on now bought it and put it out itself. 
did it come out with a book at the time? Yeah, there was a book. It had a lot of mistakes in it. And every time I would try to correct the mistakes, they would just add more mistakes. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a good album. you know. And I think it was recorded in London, wasn't it? That's right. It was recorded in London. There is a chromatic instrumental on the Blues in the Dark, which is a George Smith song. Uh, that was done on chromatic, yeah. knew George. The first time I met George, Cotton had quit Muddy, and I went down to see Muddy at a club, and Otis Penn, I see him walking over to my table with this tall guy with him, and he comes over and says, hey, Charlie, I want you to meet George Smith, our new harmonica player. Well, I already knew who George Smith was, because I had some 45s of his, and uh, we became friends right then. We were friends from then on. Because he's, he's another West Coast player, wasn't he? So was he out in the West Coast when you were? Yeah, but I met him in Chicago because uh, Muddy brought him out to Chicago. And so, I mean, talking a little bit about Blues Chromatic, then you do play quite a lot of Chromatic, don't you? You Blues Chromatic on your um, on your albums. Yeah, I play, uh, you know, mostly for myself, I play a lot. I should probably start playing more in person. I have a lot of fun with it. Going up to the 90s now, we, your first album on alligator records which you've had several and i think your first grammy nominee album which was ace of harps in 1990 so what about was signing for alligator well it's a good company i mean uh bruce Ziegler, the owner is a, one of the real honest guys in the business you make a deal with with bruce and he'll stick to it he loves the blues like we all do so it's nice to work for a guy that it's not just a businessman who actually does love the music also a guy named like chris strockwitz he really loves the music, too. He's also one of the few really honest guys in the business. Uh, Alligator really knows the business. They know how to sell records, and it's, it's uh, a good label to be on. Uh, and on that album, Ace of Harps, you got that very interesting song, Yesterday's. You often do this, don't you, where you step out of the blues genre, you know, this is quite a, a sort of um, minor, sort of ballady, sort of almost jazzy type song, play sort of a bit of jazz and Tex-Mex and different genres. Is that, uh, you know, you've always been interested in doing, you started developing in, more in some of your later albums? Well, back when I was a kid in Memphis looking for blue 78s, they were so cheap, they were only like a nickel or a dime, you know. I'd buy anything that said blues on it. I didn't have to know who it was until I took it home and listened to it. But anything else that looked interesting, I'd get that too. So I, I discovered a lot of music that had a bluesy feel to it, like Arabic music and Greek music and stuff from different parts of the world I didn't know anything about. I got the idea that every culture around the world had its own music of lament. You know, like anywhere you went in the world, there's a guy standing on the corner singing about my baby left me. <laughs> That's a, a human experience anywhere you go. And also in the blues clubs, there was a lot of jazz on the jukebox, especially like uh, the trios like Jimmy Smith and Jack McDuff. They're, those guys were playing blues, you know, but they would do other tunes too, and they would blues them up. So it was interesting to me how you could take blues and uh, blues up something that's not necessarily a one, four, five tune and uh, make it better. So I've always been interested in how you could use blues to make other forms of music interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, Charlie Parker, probably, you know, renowned to be the greatest improviser ever. A lot of the jazz songs he's were were, um, were blues songs, sort of blues songs with more complicated chord structures, yeah. Thelonious Monk is a blues player, really. A lot of his tunes are one four five. Even Coltrane recorded whole sides of albums that were blues. Yeah, so, so you talk about obviously different cultures there, and there's a, an album which is you're quite well known for is Continental Drifter, which you, I think you recorded with a Cuban band, yeah? Yeah, Quarteto Patria from uh, Santiago de Cuba, and the leader of that band is Eliadis Ochoa. He also appears in the that Buena Vista Social Club movie or video, the guy with the big white hat. But I li- actually, I liked his group better than anything you hear on, on the Buena Vista Social Club situation. And uh, to me, Eliadis is like the muddy waters of Cuba. He's really down home and a great guy, and his music really comes from the heart. I asked him about harmonica. I said, I guess you never heard anybody play harmonica with a traditional Cuban song. And he said, oh, no, it used to be a tradition, except there's hardly any harmonicas left in Cuba. And it turns out that there was a black guy from the South, and I don't know when this was, maybe in the 20s, he went to Cuba he must have been a blues player because he started adapting what he knew to the local music, which was traditional song. It sparked a lot of harmonica players, according to what Eliadis told me. And uh, it'd be interesting to go to Cuba and find if any of those harmonica players are still around and how they played and what they sound like. So how did the album come about with the Cuban band? Well, I already knew who Eliadis was, and I had all his CDs because I love that music. It's just so infectious and uh, has a lot of heart in it. And it's also a music that came from uh, African and European music came together to spark a new music in a new place, just like blues did in the American South. Anyhow, I was playing a festival in uh, Bergen, Norway, and I was talking to the promoter, and it turns out he was also a big fan of Quartetto Patria. And neither one of us had ever met anybody that even knew who they were. So we were really excited to finally meet somebody else that knew who Quartetto Patria was. Well, a couple of months go by, and that promoter calls me up and says, hey, I found Quartetto Patria. I'm bringing them to my festival, and you got to come back. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, this would be great. I hope I get to sit in with them. It will be wonderful to hear them play. And I thought, well, if I get to sit in with them, it would be nice to get a recording of that. I should have something with me to tape it. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Surely they have a studio in Bergen. We'll just go in the studio and record, just see what happens. (laughs) So I go to Bergen, and uh, I meet Eliadis Ochoa, and we talk it over, and he's really interested in we have some rehearsals, and I played them some blues. I thought, well, they could play the one four five chord change with the Cuban rhythm, but uh, that wasn't going to work. I saw pretty quickly. I said, that's okay. I know your music. We'll record your tunes, and I'll put my lyrics to it. <laughs> and that's what happened, and uh, Eliadis was really happy about it and liked what I did. And uh After that, we got to tour together quite a bit, and that was a lot of fun being on the road with those guys. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, again, a great album, and again, showing the diversity of what you've done there, different genres, different styles, and putting the harmonica in that different context, really interesting. I thought it really fit, and it worked, and it didn't sound contrived, or it was very comfortable. 
And another album which I really like of yours, which again is a little bit different, is uh, is Sanctuary. Again, it's just really got that atmosphere, a little bit like Cristo Redemptor. It's really got that atmosphere which you do so well. And uh, that song, for example, Shadow People, it's just kind of eerie, sort of harmonica. It. You know, that's a really good album. I love that one. Well, thank you very much. Ben Harper played on that album, didn't he? And we'll, we'll obviously get onto Ben shortly, but uh, that's that's where you first recorded with Ben. Yeah, I think we did a, a tune called uh, Homeless Child. And Alicia is another song I really like. So that's a that's an excellent album, that Sanctuary one. Yeah, I love that one. Re- released numerous songs all through, uh, you know, all through the last twenty years as well. Getting into the two thousand Sanctuary was two thousand and four. The Well is a, another Grammy nominated album, like a lot of yours have been. I, I understand. Is it right that the the Well was based on a girl trapped in a well, and and that that sort of inspired you to give up drinking? Yeah, I was on my way to a gig, and uh, I'd been toying with the idea of quitting drinking. It's funny how when you're trapped in that world, you can't see how to get out of it, or at least that was how it was for me. I'd been cutting down, drinking less and less and less, but the final hurdle was to get on stage without drinking. I'd never really been on stage without drinking. It didn't suit my nature to be in the spotlight. I never liked being, being the in the spotlight or having people looking at me or performing for people. As much as I love the music, I, it, I didn't get in it, into it for attention. <laughs> Drinking made all that really easy. I, I knew it made sense to quit. I just couldn't do this forever. So that was the last hurdle, to get on stage and play sober. And I'm on my way to work listening to the radio, and I'm hearing them talking about this little girl that fell in the bottom of this well. I think she had a broken arm. And I was struck by her bravery. I mean, here she was in a life and death situation, and she was down there in that well singing nursery rhymes to herself. I thought, man, I want her to live. I want her to be rescued. I want her to get out of that well. As a kind of a prayer for her, I'm not going to drink tonight. I'm going to get on stage and play, and I'm not going to drink till they get her out of the well. Now, I wasn't telling myself I was going to quit. I just wasn't going to drink until they got her out. Well, it took about three days, if I remember right. And by the time they got her out of the well, I was out of the well, too. And I didn't ever drink after that. I don't know if I told you the story about a little girl. She fell way, way down in a deep old Texas well. I was on my way to work when I heard it on the news. She took my attention from a night of getting real loose. Well, I've done that little girl for inspiring you to do that. And then coming up to 2013, you've had numerous Grammy nominees. And then you, you finally got the Grammy you, you deserved in 2013 with the Get Up album with uh, Ben Harper. 
Yeah, that was a big surprise. It sure meant a lot to me and everybody else involved. And Cindy Lauper, my old friend, was there. She was the one that announced it. That made it even more special. She's a big blues fan, too. So, I mean, what what is it you think about that album, which won the Grammy over the other? You know, you've had numerous nom- nominations for Grammys. You, you, you know, what do you think it was about that one? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. I mean, I, the way the voting process goes, I don't know who they are or how they think about what they're listening to or I just know it happens and it happened this time and I was glad it was for me <laughs> it's a real nice honor and real thankful no superb well done for that have you got the Grammy in your house there uh, it's at my Clarksdale Mississippi home excellent yeah so uh, so yeah well done for that and uh, a nice song on there um, I'm in I'm out and I'm gone Through the 2010s, you released numerous albums, I Ain't Lying, which is a bit of a cash catchphrase of yours, isn't it? I Ain't Lying. Yeah, it's just something I used to say. I didn't actually think about it. It wasn't, I came up with that for some reason. It was just, it was just a saying of mine. I would say it without even thinking. People would laugh about me saying that. We decided to name the album that. Yeah, and then you recorded another album uh, with Ben Harper, No Mercy in This, in this Land, uh, which has got another Grammy nomination. And, uh, you know, sadly, I, I believe the lyrics to No Mercy in This Land were written about, unfortunately, your mother was killed in a, in a burglary. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what happened. She was murdered in uh, my home, the home I grew up in. And the guy wanted money for Christmas, so he stole her. He, after he killed her, he took her little keyboard and her Casio keyboard and her TV and a bunch of stuff like that and hocked it at the nearest pawn shop. So yeah, terribly sad. And then the song for that won the uh, the song of the year in the Blues Music Awards in that year. Well, there was another song also I did with Mavis Staples called "Sad and Beautiful World" that I wrote about my mom's death too. That was, I thought that came out really nice with Mavis. Oh, mama, I'm crying. It's a sad and beautiful world. Mama, your child is crying. Such a sad, beautiful world. And uh, and then your most recent album, so the Hundred Years of Blues with uh, Elvin Bishop. Great, so lots of fun. You know, you can h- hear the camaraderie between you and Elvin. He's great with the sort of witty lyrics. So yeah, that, that's a really a really fun album. That Birds of the Feather talks about how the two of you playing together and really captures the, the fun of that album. I think. Here we are birds of a feather. Bunch of blues lovers gathered together, fixing to get loose, have a good time, like Brother Charlie says, I ain't lying. So clap, stop, holler, and yell. We're all friends here, so what the heck? Well, we really enjoy playing together, and we're good friends, and we've known each other a real long time, and uh, we love the music in the same way, and playing together is just so effortless. We just... Uh, it's just automatically fun. We don't have to rehearse or nothing. We just sit down and play. We just know what to do. I don't think there was any second takes, hardly. We just played it like we played it live. 
Yeah, it's great. And that 100 Years of Blues song is it that sort of tells the story that you, you know, you're both in Chicago and you've been playing the blues for such a long time and still, like you said earlier on, still learning, still improving, still working on your playing. So, yeah, it's a really got a lot of energy and a lot of fun in that album. Yeah, I really enjoyed listening to it. As well as all these albums you recorded under your own name and, and with some other guys, you've recorded with numerous people. Of course, John Lee Hooker, you're quite famously associated and you have recorded with him, haven't you? You, you recorded on the Healer album, that, That's All Right. When you love a woman, you know what you're doing, you're wrong. But love is blind, love is blind, love is blind. You, 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 you know you're being you, you know you're being you. You knew John Lee Hooker uh, is quite a friend of yours, wasn't he? He was a real good friend. I first met him in Chicago. He lived in Detroit, but he would come to Chicago to play gigs, and uh, that's where I met him, and we we became like instant friends. It's like we'd always known each other or something. We always stayed real close in touch with him and uh, often spend the night at his house. Or I knew his, all his family, and I was at his funeral, and he was a real good friend. He was a good man, and uh, anybody that knew him, I know they all miss him like I do. Yeah, and an amazing hypnotic blues style he had as well. You know, a really distinctive sound that he had in the blues, isn't it? Amazing. I love his uh, solo guitar playing, Hobo Blues and Crawling King State. That stuff just kills me. It's uh, some of the most, no, nobody sounds like that. Even if they try to play it, like, it just doesn't sound the same. The same with Jimmy Reed. There was a guy, his music is so simple, you would think, but you try to do it, it just doesn't come out the same. He can't copy that. And then some of the other people you played with, you played with Cindy Lauper, as you mentioned, on that. played on the Memphis Blues album. You played with Tom Waits, the Chocolate Jesus song. Played with Bonnie Raitt. Um, but another song, I didn't realize this was you, Charlie, until I did my research over the last week or two, is you, you played on the Way Down in the Hole song, which was the theme tune to the Wire TV series with the Blind Boys of Alabama. on their album called Spirit of the Century. That solo was in fifth position. So yeah, great, long, amazing recording career. And as you say, you've toured all around the world. You've just, you've always been on the road. I mean, what's what's life been like being on the road since what, pretty much since you were, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, have you been on the road since? Well, pretty much, except now that with the pandemic, things have come to a halt. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I pretty much lived out of a suitcase for 50 years or so. My suitcase is still sitting on my floor in my office waiting to go, but uh, ain't no place to go right now. I'm enjoying being home. I, you know, I never had a, so much time at home. It's really a luxury. I think reading here, you've got 13 Grammy nominations. You got a, you won a Grammy um, with Ben Harper for the album uh, Get Up. You won various Blues Music Awards, but you, you're also inducted in the Blues Hall of Fame in 2010. Yeah, that was real nice. And also the Memphis Music Hall of Fame, too, just a couple of years ago. And then, and then you even played for President Obama in 2013 as well. That was really nice. I had already met Obama. We have a mutual friend, and uh, I met him at my friend's home, and I gave him a harmonica. 
I remember telling him, I, I hear you like blues, and if you're interested, I can give you some lessons. And he said, well, that's great, Charlie, but I'm a little busy right now. <laughs> well, as your recording career, you've also been in numerous films, and uh, you were in the Blues Brothers 2000 film in the, uh, in the, in the band there at the end. I heard a story, is it true, that, that Elwood was based on yourself? Well, that's what Danny has told me several times, and I've seen it where he's been interviewed and said the same thing. And I used to play a club in Canada, and he was a college student, and he, he hung out at that club. And he would see me there. I didn't know him then, but he would see me. And that's where he got the idea for the look. I didn't wear a hat and I didn't wear a handcuffs on my, to, with my heart gate. Back then, I used to wear a black suit with shades and my hair slicked back and pretty much like I did in Chicago. And then you're in that great band at the end in the, in the sort of band competition at the end of the Blues Brothers. So yeah, great to play with there with all those legends, you know, B.B. King and Jimmy Vaughan and Eric Claps. And so it must have been a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I wish they'd have filmed all the behind the scenes of just us hanging out, talking and joking and carrying on it. That could have been a whole movie right there. Dan Aykroyd obviously plays harmonica as Elwood in the Blues Brothers. Do you know, is, is, have you ever talked to him about his harmonica playing? Oh, just a little bit. He would tell me, listen, I'm not a harmonica player. I'm just an actor that plays harmonica. <laughs> but I think he has a blues show now, doesn't he? So he's still very much interested in blues. And I do have a, a sort of book of his, which is about blues as well. Oh, he loves blues. He's a big blues lover. He has a radio show, the House of Blues radio show. And then you've been in a few other films as well. And uh, Yeah, there's a, a new one. I don't know if it's out yet or not, called Rough Boys, which is a biker movie. And the same guy made another one called uh, Rebel on the Highway. It's another biker movie. And uh, a lot of bikers are blues fans, and uh, I happen to know a lot of them. And I was in a horror movie called uh, Pig Hunt, and it's about a 3,000-pound wild killer pig, and a lot of people get hurt. <laughs> are you are you acting in these films? Yeah, I deliver the lines, and my wife appears in Pig Hunt. She didn't have any lines, but you can see her standing behind me. Yeah, excellent. Got your style of playing. You got this quite laid back style, and the way way in your playing and and in your singing, and you know it comes off. It's very relaxed. Well, I just follow my heart, as I put it. I, I don't really try to style myself after anybody. I just try to play what I believe is right. And, and I know you can't satisfy everybody, so I just try to please myself and figure somebody will like it. It seems to have worked out okay. It certainly has. Uh, so a question I ask each time, Charlie, is if you had 10 minutes, what, what would you spend 10 minutes playing on the harmonica? You know, I really like the way Hank Crawford phrases. I would listen to him and try to play along with him. Okay, so you, you have tried to emulate saxophone players then. Has uh, that been quite a you know key part of your learning? Well, I get a lot of ideas listening to saxophone. Also, uh, Grant Green's guitar playing, a lot of his licks are perfect for harmonica. And these guys are all real bluesy players. Superb. So we'll move on to the last section now, uh, which is uh, talking about gear. We'll get a little bit harmonica geeky now. So uh, first of all, your harmonica of choice. I know you're a, you're a sidle endorser these days, so uh, that's obviously your harmonica of choice these days. Well, I discovered them before they discovered me. I mean, I was not an endorser at first. I discovered a saddle, and I started playing them, and I just loved them immediately, and uh, it's just the best. As far as I'm concerned, it's just not a better harmonica. People sometimes give me custom-made harmonicas, and I've yet to find one that's any better than a saddle. I'm right at home with saddle. I, I like the 1847 with the wood comb and the stainless steel reeds. 
They also make a really killer chromatic on the symphony, and that's my favorite chromatic. That's the one with the magnetic slide, isn't it? Yeah, but I don't get it with the magnetic. I get it with the spring. Okay. Do you have a favorite key of diatonic? Oh, not really. I mean, they all have something to offer. C is always good because uh, I taught myself how to read music, and I could read for C. Say if something was written in C, and I could play it on a C, I could change it to F, or I'd just pick up an F on I could play it the same way. So I can read for the diatonic or the chromatic and the guitar too. Yeah, superb. And do you play any different tunings on, on the diatonics? Uh, yeah, there's some that I just fool around with for fun. I don't know. that uh, I like the circular tuning, and I like the one that they call the ED harmonica that Saddle makes. You can get some real bluesy stuff out of there. The circular tuning is just seems like the melodies just pour out of there. What about overblows? Do you use any overblows? I can do that on a good day, but uh, so far I don't think I've ever recorded it doing anything like that. It just doesn't occur to me when I'm playing to use that technique. Sometimes sitting around, I'll fool around with it just out of curiosity. But when I'm on stage or recording, I, I never think about it. And uh, what embouchure do you use? Are you a tongue blocker or a puckerer? I go back and forth. Sometimes you really want to bear down on something and, and uh, I'll lip block it. The rest of the time, I'm tongue blocking. Amplifier-wise, I see on your website it mentions the uh, the Sunny Junior amp. Is that the, your large amp of choice? Yeah, I've got all different models, the Avenger and the Cruncher and the Super Cruncher and the Super Sunny. And, but I also have some old, smaller amps I use just for recording. Like on the cover of 100 Years of the Blues is a, a magnetone right at my feet. Yeah. I use that for recording sometimes. And you've got a company there called Fat Tone, and they make a, a what they call the Fat Box, which you can plug in to play through the PA, which uh, is a really a nice way to go, if, especially if you're traveling and uh, you got to fly and you can't bring your amplifier with you. A Fat Box from Fat Tone will serve you well. So any other effects pedals? I don't actually use anything. I just have a mic and an amp, and that's it. Okay, so uh, not even a delay or anything like that? No, never. And microphone-wise, I think is it used a blows-me-away uh, microphone. Yeah, it's a company owned by my friend Greg Human, and he lives right here in this little town I live in called Geyserville. Yeah, he's mixed some beautiful-looking microphones. They're, they look so beautiful, don't they? And uh, a friend of mine over here, uh, Richard Taylor, owns one of them. I tried it, and it's a very nice mic. I, I think I saw you playing one on the uh, on a video. So is that the mic you use uh, typically when you're using a sort of bullet mic? That's all I use. I mean, I've got several, and uh, they have different elements in them. You can have whatever you want, every kind of element you want in it, and they can uh, customize the grill. You can have your initials or just a design or anything on the grill, and I really like the wood. It's just a really good, you know, blues microphone. They've got nice volume controls on on the end as well, haven't they, which are useful? Yes, and also he has that other microphone called the Bulletini, at first, I didn't. I thought it was okay, but as time has gone by, I've really, really got to like it a lot, and I'm using it more than ever. Superb. So, yeah, just um, up to the up to the final question now. Then, so looking at your website, you do have some gigs showing on there for next year. So you're still hoping to to get out there next year. Obviously, dependent on how we get on with the pandemic. Well, we keep hoping. I mean, a lot of those gigs have just been rebooked and rebooked and rebooked, hoping that. Uh, 
this will come to an end and those will be able we'll be able to do them and keep them on the calendar but if it keeps going we'll just have to rebook them again till we get her done well they're in the u.s at the moment aren't they that's the safer option at the moment but you will you still be planning to doing some international uh, gigs if you can well sure i don't right now i don't want to get on an airplane but once this gets squared away and the dust settles i'm i'm ready to go well hopefully i'll see you over in the uk again um hopefully even next year uh, charlie but uh, maybe uh, the year after that hopefully things settle down thank you very much for talking to me it's a real honor i've been a big fan of yours for a long time and as i say when i first heard i ain't right uh, i was i was hooked from that point on so thanks very much charlie well thank you uh, like i said before i admire your taste and thanks for the good work you're doing and i look forward to meeting you either here or there one of these days that's it for today folks Final word from my sponsor, the Lone Wolf Blues Company, providing some great effects pedals and microphones, all purpose-built for the harmonica. Be sure to check out their website. Charlie, it just ain't right. You got another man at home, you can't keep it here.